Technoculture. Welcome to a new episode of Technoculture. I'm your host, Federica Bressan, and my guest today is Hans Tammen, an artist and educator and much more who is speaking to me from California. Good morning or good evening for me, Hans. Hi, good morning. I understand you're in California. You're based in New York normally. You teach at the SVA, School of Visual Arts there. So what are you doing in California now? Uh, this is an artist residency. It's called Montalvo, Lucas uh, Artist Residencies in Montalvo, uh, which allows the artist to sit here for up to three months in, the, in a beautiful countryside. I'm having here a composer studio that includes a big grand piano and a good loudspeaker system. And I can sit here for a couple of weeks now to work on my, my art. So recently I was in New York and I was lucky enough to meet you and to have a conversation with you. And what I brought home from that nice conversation is that you have a very interesting approach to improvisation. Basically, you develop these uh, systems that will interact with you and make music, both in live settings or not. And I'm interested in asking you, how do you design them? What does it mean that they're interactive? What's your approach to this use of technology to make interactive systems that will improvise music with you? Um, you could... Your listeners probably could e easily find things out after the show when you just Google the term endangered guitar, which is a project of experimental guitar practice that I'm doing now for maybe 30 years. But only the last 20 years uh, where I use computers with that, uh, it became an interactive system. What do I mean with this? First is I am an, impro I, I am an improviser. Um, improvisation as something where you venture into the unknown and try to deal with this is obviously something that is not just uh, reduced to music alone. It's also part of your daily life. We are improvising all the time, but often we are not uh, aware of it. Uh, but I like to deal with new things. It's like similar to somebody... You know, some people go to the same vacation spot all their life because they know it. I'm more the kind of person who goes to new vacation spots all the time. And instead of having an, a plan where I'm really going, I just walk into the countryside and see uh, what's happening. Um, now, what does that mean, actually, from when you work with computers? Um, I added computers to my work with a guitar Uh, around the year 1999, I did some computer programming, and I feel always when my performances are uh, doing stuff that repeats, stuff that I did yesterday, stuff that I did last week, it's just like not a, a, as exciting for me or for the audience uh, as if I do something new. Um, now, there's a long tradition also, meanwhile, with gu guitars and uh, computers in that you just like put your effect pedals onto the computer. So the computer just becomes uh, some, just the effect pedals easier to carry. But I am more interested in stuff in like a dynamic reaction of what the computer can do, what these effects can do, than just one of these uh, pedals that you can just turn on or off. So I started 
programming my own software. And instead of that, the software always does what I expect, uh, like I press a button and a specific effect comes up, it uh, acts in a flexible way uh, to surprise me constantly. What I, on a technical uh, way, do is that I analyze my playing, the computer analyzes my playing, draws some conclusions and responds in a way that I'm fighting constantly with the machine and I'm surprised uh, with this. So that's it's, uh, the basic definition of interactivity. So if you uh, use a computer software, I find it more interesting and much better for my music uh, if the computer is interactive and surprises me. Is it supposed to surprise you like another human player or it's a different concept? Well, this is, goes uh, basically into the idea of the improvising machine where there have been some groundbreaking works done by uh, Dr. Robert Rowe in, uh, at New York University or George Lewis, Dr. George Lewis at Columbia University. But my machine is not really improvising, so it's not really like a, a human player yet because for that it should know, should have a memory what happens during the same performance earlier or even earlier performances. So that's what we can do as humans. So it's not really like a human, uh, it's just like a kind of, as in current stage, a kind of a controlled random, randomness uh, situation uh, that surprises me, but not really human. Hmm. Do you aim at uh, simulating a human intelligence or your system? I mean, maybe there's not just one system. You may have different types of implementation for different types of application, different types of interaction that you design with a specific concept behind it that is not aimed at actually achieving the sophistication of a human intelligence and type of improvisation. Or that's still the ideal. That would be the goal. Well, I would certainly like to improve the machine, uh, which the, it's it's never finished. I'm constantly adding new ideas and throwing out old ideas, and, and so it develops constantly. So the, the machine, the idea of the endangered guitar is also process. Uh, it's not like in one specific time uh, in history it's finished or something. That said, um, it would probably require a lot of work uh, to do this. So somebody needs to uh, pay me for that. So if somebody does that, I may consider it, but um, I'm probably have done a thousand concerts with this over the last um, 20 years. So uh, I'm kind of very comfortable with the way how it works too. Plus, I'm not really into the idea of uh, creating, like making a m machine a human. Uh, if we look at the famous idea of the Turing test, uh, if I cannot distinguish the machine's responses from a human response and the machine is a human, I find it much more interesting uh, to explore while so many humans act as machines. You, sc you scream war and everybody follows and uh, kills, you know, so that might be on a social level much more important than making human-like machines. 
so this system, what does it do now? Is it for one-on-one interaction or can it be uh, like an, a player in a, in a small group, in a band? Well, first I have used it in certainly a lot of solo performances, uh, but I use it also in numerous performances with small ensembles, mid-size, and even large ensembles, up to probably like 15, uh, 18 people, where I'm just like one performer. Um, as the other humans do also surprise me in an improvisatory uh, concert, uh, my machine gets less and less uh, um, surprising for my myself because I make have to make sure that I'm really uh, interacting with what's happening like right next to me or the other uh, part of the room. Um, as it is currently the standard is set up to just uh, respond to my input, I meanwhile also process a lot of other uh, people where I'm not bringing my guitar but just using the software on other people's instrument. The setup is now that it uh, has two inputs and can independently react to two people at the same time. And this could be as the whole system is designed in a very scalable way. Uh, if uh, there would be a project that requires me to process, let's say, eight people independently, I could probably set that up uh, within a, a few days or so. And the interaction is actually based on what? Because we're talking about a music context and you are trained as a jazz guitar player. So your system, how does it interact with you? What is the surprise element? Is it in the harmony? Is it in the melody? What is it? Um, the thing is, I got a little bit rid of like harmony and melody uh, towards the end of the 80s. And when I say experimental guitar practice, it is really focused on timbre, uh, sound, on rhythm and on dynamics. Uh, I reserve uh, melody and harmony for other works, for example, for my chamber ensemble works or something, but here uh, the guitar is lying flat on the table and I use all kinds of gadgets and materials to draw and coax sounds um, out of it, like motors, pot scratchers, uh, and, and, and whatever. So it is a sound, the guitar becomes a sound-making machine, so I would not uh, I would not be able even to um, explore harmonies here. But what I do is I track the pitch, I track the, the attack, how hard the machine, uh, how hard the guitar is hit, or how hard, how loud the saxophone is plays. Um, and I attack, I try to identify something like, like a, an, a new attack. So if you play a long note and make a very short pause and play the note again at what point does the machine say oh these are two different notes or these are this is the one the same note so i have these kind of like three elements that i'm using the trigger uh, the volume and the pitch that i uh, use to control some parameters 
in the past, I have done also much more like spectral anal analysis and so on, how rich the overtones were. But somehow over the years, this turned out to be musically not so fruitful for me. It's for others, of course, but for me, it wasn't. So these are the three elements that I'm uh, analyzing currently. And how do you balance how much the system will surprise you? I mean, I'm reading here in the, the interesting text you have on your website about all your works that this um, uh, system responds to the performer in a complex, not entirely predictable way. And then a few lines below, it says it is unpredictable in its responses. Indeed, how do you balance out the fact that it looks Randomic, which it can't be if you want to make a, a performer that has any sense, and the fact that it's maybe too predictable and that the performer in 10 minutes will figure out how it works and it would be boring. Uh, well, it, uh, unpredictable means it also changes its mind all the time. So a very simple way I have is, I mean, let's say, how do you map uh, an incoming. Let's 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 make the example with pitch, for example. You have a pitch that goes from the low E to uh, anything to the high E, a couple of octaves above of the guitar, with twenty-four frets or something like this. So you could, of course, map the lowest uh, pitch to the highest pitch to some um, easy example, a filter or, or so. Like the higher the note is, the high, the more open the filter or something. Um, however, I have used a couple of mathematical or trigonometrical functions just because I like them uh, to remap the material in a way that not uh, low is low and high is high, but it changes on a, a constantly. It's a very simple mapping thing one can do in MaxMSP, the software I'm uh, working with. Um, so I'm spending probably the first 10 minutes, 15 minutes during a performance actually to find out which one of these remapping strategies uh, these uh, are. Um, so well, and after I figure that out, I can just press a button and uh, another mapping uh, strategy happens. Then on the one of the things that I'm often doing is like feedback strategies. Uh, what happens if I uh, do not track the input of the system, but the output, which is already like a total mess and so on. So um, at that point, it becomes very, very unpredictable. Uh, so it's a continuum between very predictable, especially when I play with other people, uh, to very unpredictable when it becomes almost random uh, for me. And I need to mention here, there's, of course, one caveat uh, or fake part in it, because, of course, I control still what's happening. If the machine ever does things where I have the feeling now this goes so completely off the tracks that I cannot perform anymore, then I would cut it out, of course. Right? So I'm still the master of the machine, and it, I allow it to go to... Uh, areas of unpredictability uh, uh, that when they go too far, I make a stop to it. Here's one example. I had recently explored with a couple of new ideas uh, that were presented on a festival in Berlin that dealt with data sonification. And these were new ideas. And um, uh, during many 
points in the performance, the machine was choking and I was sitting there with no sound at all, which allowed me to play strongly on the on, on the guitar to make the acoustic sounds heard widely, which everybody loved. But then I had to reset the machine like probably four or five times during the performance to start playing again. Of course, when I came home, I threw that out, you know, you don't allow the machine to go totally crazy and kick me off the stage. Why don't we try to listen to an example of how this may sound? So you brought some uh, audio excerpts for us today. What are we going to listen to now? What is this track about? A while ago, I started to organize a music on my releases around different themes framed by interludes. So this piece, Chekhov's Gun, is the first piece in my uh, Endangered Guitar Deus Ex Machina CD. Um, and it gives an overview of what the listener can encounter on the album, which is maybe for the lazy uh, uh, critic or something. Uh, in this case, um, the piece was recorded during a performance. It starts with heavy distorted guitar sounds, uh, followed by rhythmic elements created from sounds produced during the performance. Uh, then it goes into an intricate drone and finishes off with electronic sounds that hide the fact that all sounds are coming from the guitar. This is a little bit the trajectory that I had from the early 90s to basically today, where in the early 90s I still sounded totally like guitar, and to do today you don't hear the guitar uh, anymore behind what I'm doing with the sounds produced from that instrument. Okay, so we are going to listen to almost the entire track, precisely because we want to hear all the different sections. The entire duration of the clip is 4 minutes and 15 seconds. This is... Chekhov's Gun.
When we were in New York, during our conversation, you touched on something that was very interesting for me because I work with interactive art. And what you made a comment on was the definition of interaction, which I told you gives me a bit of a headache sometimes because it's not written in stone and people have different opinions about it, legitimate opinions. Uh, but my feeling is that what we often call interactive systems are in fact not so much interactive in that you're only required to, for example, push a button and then something happens as a result of your action. There is a reaction, but that's the end of it. You can push again and you can do something else, but the previous action does not inform the following one. So this interview is interactive by definition because it's human-human interaction. But many systems that we call interactive are just, in fact, reactive, like the example I just gave. You had an interesting take on this, quoting on different sources. And I would like to ask you if, in your work as a creative artist, these labels actually matter if you're bothered or... You're one of those, ar those artists who are just focused on what they do. And I respect that very much. They cannot really say this work is this, this work is not that. Or this is 20% interactive. Um, so I would like to know if the system that, for example, you've been just describing for us and that we just listened to is interactive or just reactive and why? Um, I think... Uh I need to probably stress first that I uh, like to look at those de definitions, but uh, the main thing for me is to make a cool performance. I, it's, I'm an artist. I like uh, the music uh, that comes out of it, but I'm not a conceptual artist uh, in the sense that I say that the concept is more important than the thing that we hear or that we see. I still... Uh, like the performances to be great and if it means that I have to uh, get rid of some of these interactive ideas as I said before then it becomes less interactive or less unpredictable then I'm I'm doing it because this is really I would like to have the music here um, in terms of reactive and interactive uh, I just uh, used one of the common definitions of interactivity If I'm not even mistaken, uh, then it's even that written that way on Wikipedia or something. But it was good enough for me uh, to clarify my own thoughts uh, for it. Reactive means that the computer reacts uh, the same way it reacts to one message at a time. So you press the key A and an A Uh, appears on your screen, while I think the definition of interactivity in the Wikipedia, wherever it's coming from, said interactive means that the computer reacts to the to multiple messages and the relationship between them, which in my uh, understanding means it's not necessarily always understandable or predictable what the outcome is. So I use for my students often the example of the spell checker. Uh, you press uh, a couple of letters, um, A and D, but the spell checker gives you a totally funny response. So the spell checker is here uh, interactive, while the usual typing on the machine would be reactive. Um, 
We can, of course, go down the rabbit hole of the semantics now and look at the very little details. But for me, uh, this is just enough to clarify a few thoughts on the way how I present, uh, how I understand my software. Uh, and again, if I lose my improvisatory streak next week and want to be really make sure that the thing plays exactly the same stuff every night, then I would get rid of the interactive uh, component immediately. Where does the name Endangered Guitar come from? Oh, the simple answer is I needed a fancy title for my uh, 1998 uh, solo guitar CD, which was an exploration of uh, that kind of sound um, emitting uh, um, stuff that I did on the guitar at the same, which comes from the tradition of people like Fred Frith. Uh, or Hans Reichel, so where you really use the guitar more, um, you use extended techniques, uh, you use all kind of gadgets and materials to coax sound out of it, so the guitar becomes more like a sound board. It also, I got, then I started liking it, it became like the name for my entire guitar practice, uh, as I felt that I was always like going away from the guitar, this whole, when you start like going much beyond a specific instrument, at some point you go, go away, but it was a danger to not extinct. I always came back to playing uh, guitar. Um, and then meanwhile, I call it the entire, like my entire experimental guitar practice, um, endangered guitar, even the stuff that uh, was before 1998 when I, uh, uh, I needed a title for my CD, just because uh, it distinguishes this kind of guitar playing from like more traditional guitar playing, where you have the guitar hangs around your neck and you play harmonies and melodies and stuff. I read here on your website some of uh, your critics, what the critics say about your music. And oftentimes there are some aggressive words. For example, one is a killer tour de force of post-everything guitar damage. What do you do to this guitar? Why this uh, word choice, you think, from your critics? Um, there are a couple of things to say about it. Of course, uh, the thing is that I, well, one thing I'm not good at is describing my, my own work in, in writing. So any writer who uh, writes cool stuff uh, ends up on my website and I um, distinguish reviews. That's probably also a little, a little advice for those who are very much upset by what critics uh, write about their, their music, uh, I distinguish reviews in like uh, between the ones that end up on your website and the ones that do not end up on uh, your website. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily meant about what I do to the guitar, although I have to say there have been times towards the end of the 90s uh, where I had to refurbish, re uh, repair my guitars on a regular basis because I was also hitting them hard. But I think even when I was a jazz guitarist, I was um, really drawn to these extremes between very, very soft sounds 
and very, very harsh and very, very, very far powerful uh, playing. So extremes are really what I like. And naturally, what the critics pick up on is the extreme part. If you sit there for 15 minutes on the stage and you move uh, the violin bow in very small moves so that you create these very, very soft little uh, snippets of sound that, you know, for example, in a multi-channel um, system, crawl around the room. Nobody writes about that for whatever reason. But if you then, after that, get a pot scratch and violently crash it on the guitar and make loud uh, sounds and everything goes crazy, uh, people pick up on that. Um, and I can't help it. I also cannot take this part out of my performance because it's an integral part of my playing as well as the soft stuff uh, because again I like dynamics it's a very important part of my uh, aesthetics uh, and not only on the guitar but also with very with many other uh, projects it's very soft it's very loud but if it's loud people write about it sometimes you use the materials of science be it formulas or other things and embed them in your art or draw inspiration for your art. There is a work you've done that's called Conflict of Interest that is about data sonification and in particular the sonification of your own personal genetic analysis. Can you tell us a little bit about that work and more in general how does science inform your art? Um, well, the conflict of interest piece was the one that I mentioned before where the machine was stopping uh, uh, constantly. And I have done a better version with less pauses and uh, surprises. Recently on this Friday, I do even a new one here in uh, Montalvo. Uh, generally, science uh, does not necessarily... Uh, is not an important part that informs my art. I take my clues from a lot of um, things that I hear, that I read, that I'll take in when I walk uh, through the uh, forest. Um, my wife, for example, is totally into uh, bird songs and records them and uses that for uh, her art, as uh, do other people uh, too. Um, and when I mentioned before the trigonometric function, it's just like if you use computers, when you program your own software using um, trigonometry is an easy way to create things. So it's not uh, much, uh, it's not very sophisticated uh, to do that. The idea with the conflict of interest, uh, that piece has a different history. A few years ago, I downloaded my own genetic analysis from uh, site 23andMe. And we did that uh, just because uh, to see um, how I have family um, history. I did mine, my wife did hers, and so on. And uh, so we looked at, like, where do we come from? Mm -hmm. ah, what's interesting, though, is that they let you download the data, and it's 600,000 lines of data. The first thing that comes to your mind as an artist who works with computers, hey, I should do something with that. The second thing that I discovered is uh, that you cannot do much as uh, most of the data uh, is an 
arbitrary name, an arbitrary number that is given to a genetic variation. Probably whenever somebody discovers a new genetic uh, variation, they give it a new number. So that is not something that you could use in a traditional data sonification way. Um, because data sonification uh, looks at patterns in data that you can use uh, to create, in, in most cases, melodies, sing-alongs, or whatever. This is my critique at data uh, sonification project is that they always sound uh, the same way as uh, the, uh, the, uh, the other works of that artist. So it's no that uh, the pieces that I create sound sounded the original piece was created for the endangered guitar, sounded pretty much the same endangered guitar uh, project as I've done uh, in the past. So I have a couple of new ideas for the uh, uh, new versions now, but I'll explain that in a second. So I have these 600,000 basically random numbers, but we know a lot of or something about some of these genetic variations. So I cross-referenced it with 150,000 uh, entries in publicly uh, available research databases. So there's a number 95724 or whatever, and this is something about, let's say, sleep apnea or so, right? Uh, now, I pretty quickly found out that most of the data that was referenced was also unusable. One of the good things of my genetic analysis was um, that there's no health marker whatsoever, no Alzheimer's, no Parkinson's, so I, I should be very happy with that. But it also made me not really working with health information because it, in, in, in the data because it had nothing, it did not relate in any case with me. And I was looking through all the data, I looked for a couple of days, did some text analysis tools and so on, and then I figured out yeah, but there are also a lot of genetic variations that deal with uh, identity. Identity is a socially constructed and arbitrary concept, like hair color, eye color, skin pigmentation, age, gender, uh, Polish, German, Asian, and all these kind, kind of things that are really... Uh, not easy um, uh, to discern, and I figured I should work with that. So coming back now to my idea of the interactivity, what I eventually did is I plugged that data into my endangered guitar software. Uh, I iterate through this data, and there were a couple of things like uh, other data streams, like the position of the gene genetic variation on the chromosome that I could use uh, as a controller for controlling the position of a sound in a multi-channel sound system. But the rest was always that whenever one of these identity records comes up, it randomizes within the usual um, framework, it randomizes the parameters of the live sound processing. So it uh, becomes a little bit a uh, feeling of you're struggling with your identity but then I had the problem after the performance in Berlin that, again, it outside of these pauses that I mentioned before, it sounded like any um, normal uh, integer guitar performances. So I created a version that is uh, not using the guitar. Uh, it's laptop only. Uh, I created 
basically a synthesizer that uses some of the data from the genetic analysis for the frequencies. And I use a myo armband, which is a muscle sensor, uh, to control what I'm doing so that I'm also uh, able to walk away from the computer and walk into the middle of the place. For the performance that I'm doing in a few days, I will create a version that is entirely controlled by this myo armband that takes information of my body movements to control the processing. Uh, it will be uh, identity records will still uh, randomize uh, the parameters of the processing, but I will walk in the middle of the space in a beautiful garden and uh, do movements to create the, the piece. I like that you involve the concept of identity here, because 2018 is the European Year of Cultural Heritage, and identity is part of our heritage and who we are, and that is also expressed in our genes. And it's very nice that you also use some of that scientific material to make art. Uh, many works of art, many initiatives have been done this year, and I find this to resonate very well with that. Moving on in this conversation, I'd like to ask you something that has to do with mastering technology. I never take it for granted when an artist can, you know, do all he needs, he or she needs in the creative process, from coding to soldering. You know, there are many things involved in the creation of complex pieces. You started out as a musician. I wonder... Uh, where did the knowledge about uh, software programming come from and other skills that you obviously need? How did that process unfold? Um, I did do some computer programming at the end of the 80s where I tried to make a living as a programmer for small uh, businesses. Uh, I got, uh, you know, off of it because the life of a programmer to do that is basically uh, sitting just on your computer and um, uh, for 24 hours uh, a day and don't go out. You need to meet your deadlines and so on. I have been in the 90s. I have also worked as a consultant for unions in technology issues in that I analyzed technology that uh, entered the workplace uh, and I was an arbitrator between unions and their companies and how to make uh, the uh, electronics, the, the technology at the workspace uh, less intrusive. Um, and then I, um, when I met my wife, she was a Max MSP programmer. Max MSP is a very common uh, programming language for visuals and, uh, and audio. And she gave me the first couple of ideas what to do. And from, I, I think it took me just like a year between 1999 and 2000 until uh, everything was ready to go. And since 2001, the endangered guitar has never played a concert again without uh, that software. Um, I didn't find it so hard because I had some previous experience. 
Um, also, a software like Max MSP is because it usually works. Uh, is called node-based program programming, and that you have like little building blocks on the screen that you put together, so you can actually visually see the audio flowing from one. Uh, entity to the next uh, it is for people who are not um, actually coming from a traditional text-based programming um, background relatively easy to master so I did not have much problem with that and since I'm also teaching it at a college level I keep myself uh, um, you know I keep myself looking into new directions all the time because the students push me in new directions and uh, make sure that uh, I'm uh, not only working on my, my own stuff. Why don't we have another musical break now? This track is an excerpt uh, about one minute long from Combustion Chamber. What is this track? Uh, Combustion Chamber was recorded at Cher in New York City. That was a community event that attracted many DJs over the years, and I have played there multiple times in the past. Um, the harsh sounds over the drone are recorded through a piezo contact mic built into the guitar, and that was a technique that I've used really for many, many years by putting these specific built uh, these uh, specific contract microphones into the guitar to create to record the sounds that come from the 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 wooden body today i don't like it anymore but this was uh, one of the pieces where uh, that shows really how i work with that uh, and i also ran it through a slight distortion so it's really like that what the combustion chamber probably sounds like inside ago, I attended a lecture that Curtis Rhodes gave at the University of Padua in Italy. One of the questions that the audience had for him at the end of the lecture was about the technology that he uses for his work. And his comment was that the most important thing to know is what you need, what your needs are, because you choose the tools in function of what you need. He made this comment because 
of course, there's new technology coming out every year. Even if it's not revolutionary, you have a new piece of software, you have this other thing that's new, and there is a little bit of excitement to just chase the next thing and the next and the next. And his point was that the audience would be disappointed if he said what software he uses because it's a bit outdated. But he said, this perfectly fits my needs. I really like that concept because indeed there's just so much noise out there and for every piece of software there is some learning curve. So I was wondering how do you balance learning about what's new but also knowing your needs and sticking to what works for you and also how you present this to your students, what's their take, how do you deal with that? Uh, well, this is probably here more a question of external controllers. Uh, and yes, I, I use Max MSP or this specific software that I generated that meanwhile uh, allows also for sample playing, uh, has this little synthesizer built uh, and I use it actually as this is my composing tool. If I, even if I do something like recently I was invited to do a remix on a DJ piece. I used my software to, uh, to create that uh, remix. I stick to that, although there's, uh, of course, you're right, there are new offerings every day and each one costs money and it takes you probably three years to learn that stuff, but then there's something else out there. However, what changes a lot is the external um, controllers that you can use even on if you use the same software. Uh, I have experimented with a lot of them, but when they are cheap, like this Mayo armband uh, that does the muscle uh, tracking, um, I'm happy trying this out. It was like $80 on, on eBay, and it worked basically out of the box, and it could work with this, while many other pieces uh, that as soon as I figure out now this takes a long time to work on it and then after maybe like a couple of months you figure out no that's not even what you want I don't have time for that uh, I know enough about uh, how to deal with new technology to get a good sense of like where I should just like not waste my time on in it uh, more important is probably instead of rather than looking to my um, students is that I was working as a program officer at Harvestworks Digital Media Art Center in New York from 2001 to 2015, where this is an old arts, in, arts institution, institution in New York founded in 1977, and we helped the generation or generations of artists in creating their digital artworks. So I do not know how many uh, artists I helped. I cannot count them, uh, count them, but I helped so many artists with creating their artworks by overseeing their projects and hiring the programmers or audio engineers to help working with them. And I have seen so many instances where uh, people fell prey to this thing that you mentioned in the discussion with Curtis Rhodes, that I'm also for myself, I am a little bit luditish in uh, approaching new software. Again, I work with Max MSP for now almost 20 years, my wife for almost 30 years. We're both fine. You're originally from Germany. How long have you been in the United States? 20 years. Always in New York? Yeah. Knowing a little bit of both worlds, Europe and the United States, do you find the art scene to be different? 
And I mean it in the broadest sense possible from how do you find the artistic community? How do you find support and funding for artistic projects? And also how is art perceived, how it is ingrained in uh, society? Um, it's an interesting thing. We have to come back to uh, improvisation here because improvisation is in Europe much more considered subpar to composition. They draw often these very strong uh, distinctions. My The royalty organization I belong to does not pay a dime for improvisatory pieces, only for pieces that are uh, written down and then they uh, pay a lot. And I was under fire often in the 90s for being a supporter of improvisatory works. Uh, as soon as I came to the United States, this was pretty much gone. I mean, there are still uh, sometimes this comes up here that people feel composition, like writing everything out before and is more important. But I felt this actually personally as a, a liberation when I came here. As for the art scene, New York, Berlin, these are amazing cities to um, work with artists. Uh, here's basically everybody under the sun. So if I have like really a crazy idea where I need a specific uh, performer, they all live here. So for my third eye orchestra, where I hire a lot of people uh, um, playing my, my work, I would have no problem in finding the right person in New York, although I think that would be the same in Poland too. Um, as my financial situation, I have to say, I make my money from grants and funding uh, in the United States. Um, here's a very big funding scene, although uh, it is mostly private, private foundations. Uh, but I tend to get uh, I, I get more income from performances in Europe as there are, there are a lot of like small cities where the local government funds small series. So you can easily set up a, a, a tour with, let's say, 10, 15 concerts that are not much, but they are kind of paid so that it's kind of okay while well, you cannot do that uh, in the United States. As a researcher here in Europe, I'm mostly used to applying for public funding. You just mentioned that private funding plays a much bigger role in North America. And this, to me, seems to make a difference in the way you even apply for, for funding. The context is just different. How does it change? How do you think it changes for an artist to apply for funding here or there? Well, one has to also uh, uh, understand that um, uh, I think I really looked systematically into funding only after I was here because there are so many, but you see these are all foundations that are set up after some wealthy donor died or so. So this is like a, uh, they have a board of directors, they have panelists that um, uh, make choices of which art project um, they funded. I've been a panelist myself many times over, over the years. While, while I was in Germany, all the art funding also came from, um, uh, from, from local governments or state uh, governments uh, that I uh, 
receive. When with private funding, I do not mean that you talk to private donors, although that's also out there. It's just foundations. They publish their deadlines. So uh, you start like really putting a uh, funding calendar on with like, you know, all these entries uh, that you like systematically apply for funding um, uh, the whole year. It's, it's, it's basically constant work for an artist in the United States to apply for funding because there is funding. I mean, the chances are sometimes you are, uh, they only have 60 projects out of 1,200 that apply, but some other funding sources are a little better. I think the main difference from my experience is that funding decisions in the United States for these foundations are always made by peers. Uh, while funding decisions in Germany, the stuff that I remember, were always made by, uh, let's say, <clears throat> local bureaucrats. By peers, do you mean just competent people or also potential competitors? Peers means like people like you and me, or like artists. So I've been an analyst numerous times over uh, my life, and... Um, um, it is, they take a lot of effort, they make a lot of effort to make sure that you, uh, you address any conflicts of interest, uh, before it. But then it's also always a group of peers. I was recently on a panel where even to, uh, go to the next stage, um, you had to have an outstanding uh, result from seven of the panelists. So even if I would have wanted to uh, push my friends or something, uh, it would not have been uh, enough to do so. My experience in Germany, but again, this is like from the 90s and from the 80s, was if the local uh, cultural minister hates you, don't apply until he or she leaves the job and the next uh, person comes in. If the local minister uh, of cultural affairs likes you, you're in almost every uh, year. While in the United States, the fact that you get rejected from these panels does not mean anything because next year there's a different panel. And I've, I've seen that also as a, um, as a program officer at Harvest Works, where we also had a residency uh, with the panelists. One year, the panelists totally like rhythm and groove. The next year, they get a heart attack when there's a, a rhythm in a application. So you cannot predict how it works for the next year if you get rejected or accepted. You started being active as an artist before the internet, as we know it today, uh, existed. And also all the mobile technology we just carry in our pockets today. What I want to ask is, how does this technology impact an artist's work, and specifically your work, not because you use it in your art, although you may, but because of how you can connect with the community of artists, how you can look up funding, how you can, you know, keep up today with what's going on out there. So what do you think is the impact of this technology, uh, at least on your work and on how you communicate your own art to the world? 
Well, one thing is more, um, it's better if you hear about any festival, let's say in Munich or so, you can of course dial up all the information on the internet and see who you can talk to uh, and so on. You send uh, stuff to that was so much harder in the 80s and uh, 90s where you could only get this information through um, a magazine and you needed to, need to call them and everything. Um, there's, of course, I use, I mean, in my case, I use Facebook and even a little Instagram to reach out, but I'm not really the social media expert. Um, there's one caveat that I have that I organized a large festival once in New York and had a social media person hired who went totally crazy in uh, reaching out. And I, I made a list for every one of these events and printed out who said that they were coming, you know, on these Facebook uh, events. Um, the outcome of that was very frustrating because I rarely saw uh, these names you know, it's, it's New York, you know, a lot of people. Um, I rarely saw the people that said that they are coming to the performance uh, actually being there. So my feeling was that Facebook events uh, did not help uh, very much. So I'm not like really uh, putting a lot of effort uh, into those. Um, a friend of mine who organizes his uh, performances, but he has only one big thing a year or two, says... You know how I have a sold-out house all the time? I call everybody in prior to a performance in my, uh, in my uh, address list and tell them to come, and they come. So more or less direct interaction with humans, uh, including even calling them, might still be better than uh, social media. And then I'm also a musician, you know, inter, uh, internet and all this kind of crap. If you look at Spotify and YouTube, what they pay for, other people listen to your music, has been a total disaster for uh, artists uh, in that if you create CDs, if you create music, when you want to sell it, uh, you only get craps. Meanwhile, I had... Well, it was like 2014, I had for my record label 2,500 or 3,000 uh, streams, and I got like, what, $4 or something like this, or my artist got $4, you know, what's that? We just hit the one-hour wall, and we have to wrap this up. I think it would be a great way to close this uh, episode of Technoculture with some more music. So the first excerpt that we listened to was from your work Deus is Machina, and it was the first track on the album. Why don't we finish with the last track on the album? This track is called Fish and Sharks Do Not Have Ears. What is this title? Oh, this is just a title that I liked. Um, uh, this, I usually end my albums on a conciliatory note because, you know, if you listen to my stuff, I don't shy away from very harsh sounds as well as like very soft sounds. But I like to end it on a, <clears throat> on a nice, like chilling uh, situation. Uh, that piece was recorded in 2007. Uh, and I remember the face technique that we are hearing with these like two pitches and where one goes faster than the other in the rhythm. That was the mainstay of my endangered guitar practice at the time. So we listen to this track in its entirety. That's two minutes and 45 seconds. And I would like to thank you so much for being on Technoculture.
Thank you. for listening to Technoculture. Check out more episodes at technoculture-podcast.com or visit our Facebook page at Technoculture Podcast and our Twitter account, hashtag Technoculture Podcast.